0: If you don't like Harry Nelson, you're breaking my heart. You're tearing it apart. So listen to see here. <laughs>
1: episode 52 of the See Here podcast. My name is Morris. I'm here in Melbourne. It's a beautiful Sunday morning as the light's shining through my windows. And now that I've given you that weather report, I'd like to introduce a man who the moonlight is shining through his windows, presumably, Mr. Bernard Stickwell in Bath. Good evening. Hello. And joining us for the second month in a row, people are going to start talking. In fact, everybody is talking. It's Kerry Fristo from Boston. Welcome back, Kerry.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: It's wonderful to have you back. Unfortunately, our wonderful friend and comrade in arms, Mr. Tim Merrill, is not available to join us for the show this time around. We hope you're feeling better soon, Tim, but he'll be back for next month's program. But uh, meanwhile, the three of us will soldier on And this month's film is one that Tim actually picked, so it would have been interesting to get his perspective. But uh, I hope that he enjoys ours when he listens back, if he listens back. The film for this month is a rather long, twisty title. Who is Harry Nelson and why is everybody talking about him? And uh, we'll have some things to say about the film. We'll have some things to say about Harry Nelson's music, no doubt. And just as a little bit of a bonus treat for you... At the end of the program, so once we've finished our conversation, I'll be including an interview with a fellow called Anthony Sloman. Now, Anthony was the editor on the film that Harry Nilsson made with Ringo Starr in 1973, 74. I should really have remembered this, called The Son of Dracula. So Tony had a lot of interesting things to say about Nilsson, about the film, about the Beatles, and about... The British film industry that he came through so plenty of interesting stuff to come through to you through this episode of See Here, glad that you could join us. What we're going to do is go to a quick break, play the trailer for the film, who is Harry Nelson and why is everybody talking about him and then we'll be back to start our conversation Everybody's talking
2: at me I don't hear a word saying Only the echoes of my
3: most of the time when I mention his name, people go, who when you say Harry Nielsen, everybody says, like, no, Harry Nielsen, either they, they
0: get it right away or they have no idea.
3: Me and my arrow. He
4: brought originality to the I mean no copying
3: anybody. He was the closest thing to an American version of the Beatles. Beautiful, beautiful voice. Soft, velvety. And you'd have your headphones on and that voice would come through. You almost couldn't play
4: because it was so beautiful. Seriously beautiful. To me, he was always like a fallen angel. So there's this weird combination of of something heavenly and beatific about him and then just dirt (laughs) And, and darkness.
3: One is the longest number that you
5: ever do. Harry would turn up at your door at four o'clock in the morning, and you kind of knew that the next three days of your life
0: <laughs> were gonna be an adventure.
3: I defer Harry.
0: Man, I don't know how far you want me to go with this. Harry was a, a big bunny with really sharp teeth. Just the sweetest. Wonderful guy
2: that could be the nastiest son of a bitch in two seconds right after that He was his own worst enemy. I mean just the drink and the drugs alone
4: He spent most of his life in pursuit of a good time and he caught it and uh, it caught him in the end
1: You're listening to episode 52 of C here, and joining me is Kerry Fristo in Boston and Bernard Stickwell in Bath. And we're going to be talking about the film Who is Harry Nelson and why is everybody talking about him? The director was John Scheinfeld. The year of release was 2006. And the film features such revered talking heads as Jimmy Webb, Richard Perry, Mickey Dolan's of the Monkees, Terry Gilliam, Randy Newman, Van Dyke Parks, and a bunch of people I haven't even remembered to write down, but noticeably absent from the interviews is Ringo Starr and I know that he said that he found it too painful to be interviewed on film about his old friend Harry Nelson for this film but he is certainly there in archival footage and we'll probably get to that I'll go around the table as it were Kerry we invited you back for this episode because after last month being a good sport and coming to talk about a musician that you knew nothing about and a film that you knew nothing about I thought it was probably fair to have you come on to talk about a musician who you loved so um, I (laughs) I wanted to ask you what are your early memories of listening to Harry Nilsson.
2: To be honest, it's funny. As I was watching this film, I was learning about more about him than I knew before. I was familiar, of course, with the soundtrack from the movie Midnight Cowboy. Everybody's talking at me. That was, you know, probably his biggest hit and Without You, the two biggest hits that I knew of. And I knew that he was a singer-songwriter that honestly seemed almost mysterious to me. The film has a great title because it relates not only to the song in Midnight Cowboy that made his name a little more of a household name, but also the fact that all these big stars talk about him, but he wasn't necessarily a household name. And he still isn't really now. I mean, if you mention him now, people don't know him super well, even though they know a lot of the songs that he wrote and either performed or wrote for someone else. I don't <laughs> I, I honestly was finding out the more I found out, the more I realized I didn't know about him, mm-hmm. which actually was interesting, and I enjoyed that. I thought that was a very good
1: documentary. Bernie, do you have any recollection about listening to Harry Nilsson? I'm not sure. Would he have been in your musical wheelhouse?
5: Kind of, well, no, to be honest. I mean, like Harry says, I, I knew the hits, as it were. I knew um, Everybody's Talking, and Without You is Without You, isn't it? Yes, yes, yeah. which was... yeah, yeah. I was embarrassed yeah. to find out that that was actually a bad finger song. I
1: always sort of assumed that that was a, a Nilsson tune.
5: Oh, and that's the interesting thing about Everybody's Talking as well, isn't it? He Mm. didn't write that one either. But uh, I guess we'll get to that. But yeah, I mean, I was kind of obviously aware of him and his sort of Beatles connection and his kind of reputation for uh, hard living and, you know, certainly during the 70s. But to be honest, he's one of those guys I've often thought, oh, I should check out some Harry Nilsson and just never got around to it. Yeah, I mean, like Kerry was saying, I I was aware of him but didn't know a huge amount I thought I knew because uh, obviously there's a lot of stuff in this that that was news to me so um interesting as well i'm just on imdb here and have either of you heard of a film called who is harry kellerman and why is he saying those terrible things about yeah, I, had yeah I have heard of that,
1: song. that never occurred I, to me that this was probably in tribute I, to that
5: i think it must be because looking at the description of that as well it's about a uh, enigmatic songwriter so uh Huh. That's possible to see here, viewing a bit further down the line.
2: And he's played uh, by Dustin Hoffman.
5: Exactly. Yeah, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah,
1: you know, in fact, I'm pretty sure that I heard the name of that film on Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal podcast. That sounds like yeah, the exact sort of bright. thing that they would talk about.
5: Yeah, yeah. But uh, So I, I think that the title may be a bit of a nod to that as well. That's interesting, isn't it? Mm.
1: By the time I started listening to pop music in, I think it was 1975, I, I think you know, Nelson's probably his his most famous songs and his biggest hit-making days were well behind him, and so I didn't really explore him as a 10 or 11-year-old, and to be honest with you, it's probably not the sort of thing I would have cared for as a 10 or 11-year-old, but, you know, like you guys, you know, I did hear you know, repeats of Everybody's Talking on the Radio, and of course, you know, watching Midnight Cowboy millions of times. You know, I was well familiar with it from that. And it was only, I think, about 15 years ago or so where a friend went and introduced me to uh, the albums of Fred Neal, and I heard the original version of Everybody's Talking.
5: Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes
1: of my mind. And really, to my way of thinking, as nice as that is, Nelson owns it. You know, his version was, to my way of thinking, superior to the Fred Neil original. But Fred Neil's is still pretty great. The song one was made a big hit mm-hmm. in Australia by the singer Johnny Farnham, who his version being so much more loud and intense than the Nelson version, I think is probably more based on the Three Dog Night version, which we hear in the film I know Amy Mann covered it for the film Magnolia and I think that's a little bit more faithful in tone to the Harry Nilsson original I'd heard Coconut on The Muppet Show The
2: lime in the coconut He drank them both up He put the lime in the coconut He called the doctor woke him up and said
1: Doctor Ain't there nothing I can take I said Doctor To relieve this flipper ache I said Doctor Ain't there nothing I can take I said
0: Doctor To relieve this flipper ache Now let me get this
1: Straight, you put the lime in the coconut, you dragged them both up. You put the lime in the coconut,
0: you dragged them both up. Growing
1: up, I was a big Muppet Show fan, and uh, but at the time, I didn't associate it with Nilsson. It wasn't until I think I saw Reservoir Dogs and they played that over the closing yeah. credit. <laughs> Is this where this song comes from? Okay, it's a, it a Nilsson tune, like you with these little things. I'd not sort of really invested myself much into his albums. I think I'd like, I'd heard Nilsson Schmelson and a touch of Schmelson in the night in the 80s and. A Touch of Schmilsen in the Night is, yeah, really not my bag. And I, I know it's become common for pop artists to do their tribute to the great American songbook. But if I'm not going to listen to, you know, Rod Stewart or Linda Ronstadt do it, then I'm probably not going to listen to Harry Nilsson do it either. I, I didn't particularly yeah. really care for that. Mm. But Nilsson Schmilsen I remember thinking, oh, this is a pretty good album. But probably because I still had this impression in my head that, oh, yeah, he's that A Touch of Schmilsen in the Night guy, I didn't really see any further use for following that up. Actually, you know, so the other thing that I just remembered that I was familiar of his songs were the monkey's cuts Daddy's Song which was in the film Head and Cuddly Toy yeah, yeah. which I think is on Pisces, Capricorn, Aquarius and Jones You're
3: not the only cuddly toy that was ever enjoyed by any boy You're not the only choo train that was left out in the rain the day of the Santa came.
5: The other song of his, which crops up in this, and I I totally, I mean, I knew it, but I didn't realize where I knew it from, is it's used in Goodfellas, isn't it? Yes. Into the fire. Yeah. yeah, Jump into the fire. Yeah.
2: Yeah. The first time I heard it was when I saw Goodfellas when it came out in 1990. I don't think I, I don't know, I might have heard it before, but I remember hearing it going, who is that? Like, I didn't know it was Nilsson. I didn't know until the credits rolled. oh my gosh that's the without you yeah yeah Yeah. oh
1: we'll probably uh, talk in a few minutes about his musical progression because that's really some pretty amazing stuff
3: i don't think harry expected to live very long both his parents died in their 50s so you know that somehow becomes a factor in how people look at
1: life In prepping for this show, I went back and listened to a ton of his back catalogue, went through a whole bunch of his albums. I mean, I don't think I got through everything because there's so much and I wanted to give each album like a good three or four listens or so just so I could really get a feel as to where he went and I got to say it was such an enjoyable experience and I mean it's some of those songs were covers and he certainly loved doing his interpretations of other people's music but his songs as a songwriter were absolutely amazing and it's sort of interesting to sort of know whether you sort of refer to him more as Harry Nilsson the songwriter or Harry Nilsson the singer who I think someone in the film says he's got like a three or four octave range and just an absolutely gorgeous voice and there's uh, that moment i can't remember who it was but someone was talking about one of the songs that harry did on his early albums and he had this chorus of background singers and one of the criticisms was oh why didn't you name the background singers in your album cover but it was all them
3: he was my mother's biggest fan. we used to walk beside the sea and he told me how life would
5: It was all him doing these multiple
1: complex jazz-type harmonies.
5: It's interesting, isn't it, that um, he's probably more well-known as a songwriter than a performer. You know, they are absolutely spot-on when they talk about what an amazing voice he has, and it was really noticeable watching this. just really clicked. My God, he could sing the heck out of a song, couldn't he?
2: Yeah, but he didn't tour. I mean, one of the reasons that he's not known as a performer is because he didn't perform. I mean, publicly, not too much. They talked about this a lot as it's a really odd business model that he chose. And it wouldn't work for every other kind of band or every other musician. Because generally speaking, you go into the studio, you record an album, and then you go on tour to promote it. You do a combination of concerts and appearances on Johnny Carson or, you know, whatever the talk show is of the day to promote it and he just didn't play that game (laughs) and it's 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 kind of fascinating to think that he sold any albums (laughs) but it seems like he did have the backing of the studios he worked for because I mean even if you see publicity photos you see him behind a huge billboard with his own name on it like schmilson you know there's all kinds of pictures of him with like these large billboards that whoever the whatever the uh, name of the studio I can't remember who he recorded with RCA. Um, RCA would put out and so st- he had some kind of support and apparently they thought enough of him to let him do his own thing
5: I guess because he he kind of came out of almost the tail end of that sort of Tin Pan Alley songwritery type sort of period yeah um, the Brill so be-
2: building and all that yeah, yeah.
5: yeah. and so because he proven himself as a songwriter and obviously generated sort of some hits and some money for the companies that he was recording for I guess they were more than happy to throw a bit of money at him to for him to do what he wanted to do.
1: I want to come back to the medium that he chose to present himself visually in a moment, but just on the point that you make about him coming on the tail end of... The Brill Building, I mean, I don't think he, he didn't work in the Brill Building because he went off to no, Los Angeles, no. but, but you know, similar sort of deal where professional mm. songwriters work 95 yeah. to write songs for other people. When he started recording, 67, 68, and this is something that I think has often been said about the band as well, when the popular perception of a rock performer at that period was to be dabbling in psychedelic music or heavier music or experimental music, and yet he was doing very almost British Music Hall type stuff. I mean, you listen to those first two or three albums and there's a mixture of, of hodgepodge of things, but I think I've come as album number two or number three is just called Harry. And that's very much 1920s British Music Hall and a bunch of songs.
5: Do you have to look away When you pass by the diner Where the squad car stops for coughing Don't you wish that you were Anyplace else but
3: here don't you feel kind of funny when a man in the suit says, Man, do you know where I can get high? Don't you wish that you were place else but
1: here? We got the sense of it through the song Cuddly Toy. You know, Davy Jones, that was his thing. That was, uh, you know, his, his background, musical theater. And to see him sort of, you see that little bit of footage in the film from the Monkey's TV show. And to just right. sort of but see I, him do I that think soft with, shooting. Um,
5: with, with British music from that period and you know, a British psychedelia, there definitely was a big element of that kind of musical sort of thing that, that kind of went into that. So, it, it, you know, it kind of made sense because I guess he was quite an Anglophile, wasn't he? He was obviously yes. a huge Beatles yeah. fan that it would kind of make sense for him to go in, in that route. But yeah, there's definitely a huge uh, sort of influence of that in, in his stuff from that period, isn't there?
2: I can see where Davy Jones, because I, I know Davy Jones was heavily involved with that and you see and he looks so perfect with that the straw hat and the stripy jacket <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know yeah. it's perfect and then and yeah. the lyrics to the nilsson songs do adapt well to that that milieu i think really a lot
1: they keep making for all the obvious reasons the comparison between nilsson and the beatles you know because they obviously had this strong admiration and love for each other and Lennon and Ringo in particular became to be very big parts of his life. But because of this whole very Anglophile thing that you mentioned, Bernie, I'd almost say that Ray Davies and the Kinks were probably a better fit, at least around that period, musically to the sort of thing that sure, yeah. Harry Nilsson was doing. And so, the, to the point I was trying to make, is that with so much attention being made to what was then the new sound, the summer of love, or the harsh sounds against what was. Was going on in America, you know, with you know, bands like the Stooges and the MC5, and here comes this guy who's saying, "No, I'm going to play for you music that your grandparents would have dug, and you're going to really enjoy it." And lo and behold, people really did. And RCA went and said, "Here, uh, go make these records." And they're very clean-sounding records. They're very precise. You, you listen to, uh, I think, the big example. And this is not so much a music hall type thing, but uh, in terms of the cleverness of his arrangement, he does a song, a Beatles song from the Hard Days Night album called You Can't Do That. Oh,
3: it's the second time I caught you talking to him I got to tell you one more time I think it's a sin Gonna let you down And leave you flat Gonna let you down and leave you flat Because I told you... People back.
1: But he very cleverly throws in little one-line motifs from about 15 or 20 other Beatles songs in between lines. And I just think the guy was a genius arranger. It wasn't just about coming up with a new song and putting his own vocal spin on it, but he's coming up saying, right, let's make this musically interesting as well. And he was able to be fanboy to the Beatles, but while being musically very, very creative and, and almost a genius, I think. That was really clever.
5: This is Nielsen for Vista. Vista volunteers do all kinds of work in all kinds of places, but only where they're needed and wanted. They help poor people to develop pride in themselves, and they help poor people to become part of a relationship, one of two. Find out if you could be a Vista volunteer and write Vista, Box A, Washington, D.C. That's Vista, V-I-S-T-A, Box A, Washington, D.C.
1: Thank you. Coming back to this whole thing about the progression of his music, Kerry, had you actually sort of gone back and had a chance to listen to a cross section of his albums at all?
2: I can't say that I did what you did, where I didn't take all of his albums and listen to them three and four times each. Mm. But I admire your dedication. <laughs> um, I now I really want to hear that you can't do that. I want to hear that song a lot. Lo- that happens to be one of my favorite Beatles songs. One of the things that I wanted to hear, I heard, I listened to some of the Randy Newman album, mm-hmm. which now I, for some reason, the title of it escapes me, but it. I think it's like Harry sings Newman or. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe. Nelson sings Newman. You know, it's fine. I did, to be honest, not my favorite. I mean, Schmilson, of course, and that one I had heard all the way through, and I was listening to it in the car with my daughter a lot, going, hey, hey. And she'd get, oh, one, wait a minute. One, that's I know that song. That's Three Dog Night, isn't it? And that, which I was very proud of. I didn't know that, that he had recorded that song, but I like his version, and I thought it was fascinating that he got the idea from the busy signal on the telephone.
3: One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do Two can be as
2: bad as one It's the loneliest number since the number one which I thought, it's perfect, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, that's totally right, but it, that was really neat. But I listened to that, and I listened to the standards, a little touch of Schmilson in the night, because I was really curious, I really like old standards, but I, and I was curious to see what his arrangements were, and, and not a big fan of that album, I must say. Yes. Sir. And as much as I like old standards, and I like some of the songs that he chose, the arrangements were really florid. That's the best way I can think of, is that <laughs> they were just these really full orchestral, you know, lots and lots and lots of strings, and it, just too much for his voice. Like, they say he had this long range, but to me, his voice is also small. His voice is conversational, and it doesn't, to me, fit with this huge orchestral background. I think had he taken those songs and done really simple arrangements and just sung them as if he were singing them to like one of his kids or something honestly that would have been a much better use of his skill set than putting him with the gigantic London Philharmonic Orchestra and all this kind of stuff but that's just me I feel the same way about Nat King Cole albums you know if you go way back to Nat King Cole who has it's absolutely gorgeous voice and did some beautiful beautiful things they put him with this huge orchestra orchestral background which I think takes away from the gorgeousness of his voice you don't need all that garbage to go along with someone who has this voice that really can tell a story and and Harry's voice where I don't think it's like he doesn't hit all the notes Right? He doesn't make it all the time. But sometimes that works in songs, especially in popular songs, especially if it's a really angsty song. It's kind of perfect. Like, I didn't even make it because I'm so upset about whatever it is that I'm (laughs) singing about. Oh, my God, you know, I can't even get through the night. That works for for Harry Nilsson, but for the standards, they really need just a clear, smooth, classic kind of voice.
5: Watching the documentary and the, the progression of his career and the point when he recorded that LP, it just seems to have been pretty much everyone around him was just taking that as a very self-indulgent thing Mm -hmm. that was more about his ego than it was anything else recording that lp and certainly from what you and morris are saying you know that kind of seems to be the case because it's obviously not his his greatest lp by a long stretch so
1: and yet there are probably a lot of people out there who love it they say that is the nilson lp oh what he made this other album pussy cats But that's not the lovely, charming (laughs) Nelson that I know. He's gone off and made this shambolic, drunken-sounding album, which, incidentally, I absolutely adore.
5: Hiya, Pussycat. You say you bought a cute little puppy and it grew into a hyena? And you get a part-time job in a leather shop called Whips of All Nations? Is that what's got you down, Pussycat?
0: Well, rise up! Get yourself Harry Nielsen's new album, Pussycats, produced by John Lennon, Nielsen's latest... Pussy cats on RCA records and tapes meow and purr
1: as I think you say Carrie it probably was self-indulgent but and yet it's part of that story and i got to admire this progression he's gone from precision baroque pop to shedding that skin and becoming a, a sort of rock guy with Nilsson Schmilsson Son of Schmilsson then doing this vanity project before I think the expression used in the film is uh, lambing rock stars who everyone feels that like they have to do it and he did it years before just because he thought that no, this would be a good idea these are the songs I love and then going mm-hmm. Going off to uh, do the, the remaining albums of his career, and I, I think yeah. it's an interesting progression.
2: It is too, and and I agree with you. I, I know my thing with the the standards album that got me was I didn't hear his love for the songs in the songs. Right, like mm-hmm. in in Schmilson, I heard it. You could hear you're like, oh yeah, okay. I, I, you know, there are certain other songs too, Into the Fire, you know, Jump into the Fire, there's certain, you know, songs here and there that you can really hear his passion for what he's singing about. Without You is a classic example. I mean, there's so much angst and just heartbreak that I love it. I love angst songs so much. And (laughs) so that song just gets to me. The the standards, it didn't seem like his heart was in it, you know, and they're saying that it was such a, that he really wanted to do it and he felt strongly about it, but I, I just I don't hear that In the actual recording Even though he did Some really interesting things In a couple of the tunes But I wish he had done More of his own stuff because i really mm. think some of his own stuff was so clever and so different
1: well it still has a rather large back catalog even if he was determined to just do this one album but i i really like oh, what sh- you suggested there about it would have been great if he had like a pair down maybe a, a jazz quartet or something like that that could have uh, done these songs a little <laughs> bit justice it, it does sound too uh, i think user would florid i think yeah mm-hmm. per- perfectly good description
3: so one day i was uh early five in the morning i got a phone call and there's this voice long distance hello hello who is it it's john john who john lennon is this really john he says yeah i just wanted to say you're fantastic man but listen to you all weekend you know he's great 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 you know he's just fantastic uh the following monday i got a phone call from paul how are you just calling to say you're fantastic you know just oh you're great you know and uh Really love what you did and all that stuff. You know, Derek played it for us and hope to see you soon. Crunk.
1: Probably at this stage, we should probably talk a bit more about the film itself as well as the music. So I want to know from both of you, how do you think that it worked as a documentary? How do you think it displayed... What Harry's life was like, and did it sort of go into the man? Was the question answered? In fact, who is Harry Nelson, and why is everybody talking
5: about him? To be honest, I kind of felt that it was pretty much a a VH1 Behind the Music kind of thing. And as a film, Mm -hmm. it's it's pretty much the basic Talking Heads template. As you you know, go through somebody's career and talk to the people who were there at various points. And this is the thing that really struck me about it as well, is the kind of the idea of the unreliable narrator almost. Because particularly, um, I think there was a guy who was his cousin, who he was really, crops up quite a bit in it. And, you know, he was talking about how Harry was feeling this, and he did this because he felt this. And that just kind of made me think that a lot of these documentaries where it is the, the talking heads it's just these people's impressions of the subject they don't really know what he was actually feeling or going through at that point this is just them kind of speculating mm. i just, so that that's a bit of a a tangent really yeah i i thought as is the case with any of these kind of talking head type documentaries it all depends on the subject matter and you know the harry nelson story is uh, it's kind of the, the the classic progression isn't it kind of wide-eyed talented young songwriter having some success getting kind of a bit self-indulgent and indulging in the the chemicals and the alcohol and sort of hitting the peak of his fame then not being able to recapture it and you know dissolving in the uh, in the alcohol and drugs being saved by in this case his wife and family going through some more financial shit being a kind of respected guy and then kind of dying too young so all the kind of parts are there and it does a good job, you know, of kind of illustrating all that. But it's, I, I don't know, just as a film, I don't think there's really anything to distinguish it from other films, documentaries of this sort. So I don't know, that was my impression. I don't if I'm being a little harsh on it, but.
2: Well, I can, I can absolutely see what Bernard's saying because it struck me as a survey course rather than an in-depth study yeah. of the person. It was interesting to me because I honestly did not know that much about him personally. So I had no idea he was friends with the Beatles. I didn't know anything about that. And it was interesting to hear the people that I thought were really interesting were Jimmy Webb and Van Dyke Parks. The uh, songwriters, those are songwriters who, boy, they stood the test of time. Both of them were mm-hmm. in the business forever. Mm-hmm. Songwriters and sidemen, both of them, I think. And they had a great deal of respect for him. They were sad to hear of his downfall, so to speak, of you know his getting way too into the partying and all that sort of thing. And then the loss of his voice. A terrible yeah. shame you know, for his basically his, his instrument. I mean, obviously, his brain was his instrument too, because he was a writer as well as a, a singer. And he did do some stuff later, like I Like New York in June for the Fisher King soundtrack, right, which honestly, right. I had no idea that was him until they uh, said it on the film. I didn't, I've seen that movie a bunch of times. I guess I never checked the credits. I don't know. I just assumed it was, I, I didn't know who it was. I didn't, I but I never would have guessed that it was uh, Harry Nilsson. And he does a lovely job on it but you can hear that he just doesn't have the range that he had once and he doesn't have that sweetness to his voice that he did when he was younger but i agree with bernard in that if you already knew about harry Nilsson, you're not going to learn anything much here but i didn't know a lot so i did learn some stuff so that was kind of interesting to me it's interesting his connection with he and ringo seem to be really chums and you know the two of them were stood as best man at each other's weddings and then john lennon of course someone's going to hit me with a stick for saying this but i have yet to hear anyone call john lennon a good influence i mean i just <laughs> unfortunately he shows up every time he's in involved with somebody <laughs> he's, he's,
5: i will um, i'll take the flag here i will stand up and say it. john lennon was a dick yeah. I, okay. I'm
1: not going to go there as a Beatles tragic however being a Beatles obsessive I'd long known sure. that story about John and Harry going in to see the Smothers Brothers and what had happened as a result of that I knew nothing else about the life of Harry Nilsson but I knew that story and I won't get the quote right but in the book that I read there was a chat with one of the waitresses who I think a flying punch from Lennon had socked her in the jaw and she said it's not the physical pain that hurts. It's the knowledge that your idol is an asshole. So
5: yeah, right. Oh, yeah. So yeah, yeah. I think Lennon was a um, what we call here in the UK. We call them a wind-up merchant. It's the kind of person who will go into a situation and purposely stir it up, and then step back and take pleasure in watching.
1: Oh. So he's an Andy Kaufman before Andy Kaufman.
5: Um, yeah, kind of. but uh, a, a shit stirrer. B- yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah, b- I know b- that expression. B- yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's that kind of thing. It's the kind of person who will start the trouble and then sort of back out and observe the trouble without getting, you know, punched themselves. Right. So, yeah. Uh, yeah,
2: that was a terrible story. Because here, the poor Smothers Brothers had already been fired from their network television oh. show and they were trying for a comeback, and this was the troubadour. A fantastic club. This was yeah. gonna be their comeback. They had the audience was full of people who were very influential and <laughs> and John Lennon and Harry Nilsson screwed up for them, you know, and I just feel like, Oh my gosh. That was sort of tragic. But I mean I thought some of those stories were interesting. I had no idea of his connection with Mickey Dolan so much. And it's funny, every time you see a pop star or a rock star that has any kind of self-destructive qualities, Robin Williams is on the video. <laughs> I mean, holy God. This guy was at every party. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm waiting for the Chateau Marmont film at 11 from all these things, because he's got the John Belushi thing going, too, and yeah. oh my God.
5: I oh, think Robin Williams had, uh, he's got a hearing like a dog, but it's, so, it's really finely attuned to the, the sound of someone chopping at a line of cocaine within a, within a hundred mile radius he can hear it and he's, he was there in seconds you know
2: Brian Wilson lived longer than he did and I just feel like wow because Brian <laughs> that guy was a mess he had all kinds of mental issues but he was on every drug and imaginable too partially because of that terrible guy.
5: Yeah, that psychiatrist guy. Somebody says in the documentary, I can't remember who, he says that there was a certain point where he just realized that Harry Nilsson had a death wish and it took him 20 years, but he basically killed himself. Yeah,
1: you know what? Look, I think that that is... It's not an unreliable narrator sort of thing, but I think in Australia, yeah. it's what we call a Monday's expert. You know, after the event, okay. it, all se- it, all yeah, seems, yeah. it all seems obvious. But the film doesn't necessarily go into that level of detail, but it likes to imply that once he met his third wife, Una, then things changed for him. The alcohol stopped, I mean, or at least maybe it was greatly reduced. And after John Lennon had been assassinated and he found his purpose to go out into the general public and. Say, yeah. how horrible the nra was and harry we need you more than ever my name is harry nielsen and i'm
3: uh, national chairman of the end handgun violence week which takes place between october
1: 25th and october 31st uh, if you'd like to help us end handgun violence please write to 100 maryland avenue
3: northeast washington dc two oh 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 two Too bad we have so many people dying every year from handgun violence. Thank you.
5: That was really interesting, wasn't it? I wasn't aware of any of that. Mm -hmm.
1: The film didn't seem to imply that all the old ways of the coke and the alcohol mm-hmm. binges continued post-meeting the love of his life and becoming this really dedicated family man and going mm-hmm, into going mm-hmm. into bat to uh, kick the NRA's ass. So that's why that whole statement of, oh yeah, it took him 20 years, but it eventually yeah, happened, yeah. Yeah, it seems a bit disingenuous to me. Mm-hmm. He definitely
5: had that kind of redemptive arc at the end of his life as well, didn't yeah, he? It? It, that was his yeah. third act.
1: Yeah, yeah. I tend to agree with both both... both of you about the film not being necessarily distinctive from any other typical music documentary, and yet one thing that I was thinking about was, is it the music documentary's role to actually do anything more than deliver a, hey you might not know about this guy let us tell you why he's worthy of your time and he had an interesting story and I think that this film does that really quite well. I think you said Kerry that yourself who was sort of like a Nilsen, not, if not quite a beginner but you didn't know much about his backstory like neither did I so I found that it did its job very well in in that regard. I had read a review somewhere from a, like a Nelson diehard who said "No, nah, this film is rubbish, it doesn't tell me this, doesn't tell me that, rah rah rah. Oh yeah, but yeah. I think typically any music biography would, is best dealt with in book form where you can go into great detail and I remember sort of making that complaint a couple of years ago I'd watched the film What Happened Miss Simone about Nina Simone and there were a lot of interesting things there but I just sort of, hang on, oh you could have gone into so much more detail about this or about that thing or he barely covered the music in this film I'll, I mean there, look, there's a lot of good stuff I'll get my quips out of the way so I can then sort of say but this is what I think they did well they make little implications but never really quite say never even sort of quite hypothesise. And why he repeated his father's behaviour in leaving his second wife and his first son. They never sort of mm-hmm. say how he actually recovered from going bankrupt, which they talk about later on in the film. It's mm. just a bad thing. He lost all his money because he'd been, I think, cheated by, I can't remember, was a manager or someone. He yeah. was an
5: accountant, wasn't he? Yeah. Right, yeah. right, right.
1: Never say how he recovered from going bankrupt, but you get the sense that he did. They, they make this big statement, but, well, yeah, well, what happened next? They never actually stated how he developed as a songwriter or as a musician. They, no, he they,
2: just came out of nowhere.
1: Right, they make mention that his uncle had gone and encouraged him to sing and paid for singing lessons or something like that but he comes out of the gates with these brilliant arrangements and these wonderfully simple sounding but complex songs what they now call Baroque pop and we don't get a sense of how that developed. There is plenty of music talk which I appreciate for a film like this which not all music biographies actually do but we don't get that sense of development and as I think I mentioned before we don't get much of a sense that these early records were going against what was then the counterculture and that's probably one thing I would like to see more of in music biographies is saying what was the background yes he went and recorded these great albums but what else was popular at the time what was he competing yeah. against they talk about the Beatles and they Context, talk about yeah, yeah. about the monkey exactly mm-hmm. they, they talk about these other groups that he had an affinity with I don't know he was releasing his early albums like from 67 68 but why don't they also go and say well at the same time that Harry Nilsson was releasing this we had Iron Butterfly releasing an album and, we had Janis Joplin releasing an album, and right. this was encountered. They show Randy Newman in the film. He recorded an album of Randy Newman songs with him, but mm-hmm. they should have made a point that Nelson's own songwriting paralleled, in my way of thinking, Randy Newman's own style of songwriting where he could either be completely sweet and sincere or he could be really bitter and, and cynical, so yeah. there was there's a yeah. song on one of his albums, I can't remember, but one of the early albums, I think it's called Mr Richland's Favourite Song. When he was young he
3: sang in the band and his fans all looked the same And the fans he had were younger than he and they loved to scream his name They'd leave at the end of the third show, go home to talk of the fun Well isn't it nice, the parents would say Well isn't it nice, you got someone, someone
1: This is a song about the fleeting nature of fame and it's very cynical but with a gorgeous melody and it sounds to me like exactly the sort of song that Randy Newman could have written and they don't really sort of go into any detail in this film to make that comparison. They have Randy Newman as a talking head but they could have done something to sort of go and make the comparison because their songwriting, it's very, very on par, very, very similar I mean, not like the other West Coast songwriters of the early 70s, so there's no real comparison between, say Judy Sill, who you and I really adore Bernie, or Mm. Warren Zevon, or the Eagles, or any of the other West Coast-based people, or even Tom Waits there's not much of a comparison there but I think they could have done themselves a good service by talking about comparison with other songwriters of the period, or things that he was doing that was completely counter to what was the mainstream of of the time
5: Well, I I think you're right, Morris, in that the musical biography is best served as a book isn't it because mm. with the movie you are limited by the actual format and sure they could have touched on a lot of those things you were talking about but you know then you maybe have a three four hour runtime if you were
2: right right
5: so it's something like this and again I don't think this is aimed necessarily at the Nielsen obsessive it's aimed more at people I guess like us in a way who might be aware of him but not super knowledgeable of his work and and as you say in that respect it it does a good job of telling you everything touching on all the basics of him and his career and his story so yeah
2: I agree with both of you I don't have a problem with a biography not being some kind of weird avant-garde style and you know amazing Dutch angles and cinematography and (laughs) all this crap because I want to know about the subject so you're right that, that totally makes sense and since he's not around then you talk to the people who were around and who met him and they do have opinions and sometimes their opinions are right and sometimes their opinions are BS and that's fine but I feel like the the person who made this film really likes the Beatles yep. and he, I know yeah, that yeah. and <laughs> I really like the Beatles too and Harry Nelson did and he had a relationship with them but that was really the focus. Randy Newman was on there for two seconds. Paul Williams was on there for two seconds. These are all big at the time and they're not as sexy though. I mean quite frankly the
5: thing, the, isn't it? Yeah, the film yeah, was we're... made
2: in what? What did you say, 20, 20, 2006 or 2010 is when it was released. Everybody knows who the Beatles are, but not as many people know who Randy Newman and Jerry Buckley and Paul Williams and Jimmy Webb and Van Dyke sure. Parks are. So, those people got short shrift, they didn't get the kind of screen time that. I would have given them because I would have thought their stuff would have been more interesting (laughs) because I agree with you Randy Newman's style and his style seem very uh, simpatico it's hard to fight the allure of the Beatles
5: (laughs) the director was I mean he was just hedging his bets and thinking if I'd stick a load of Beatles stuff in it's going to appeal to uh, a wider audience perhaps than it would otherwise if you know like you say if we were just talking to Paul Williams or Randy uh, Randy Newman
2: yeah I mean he had a lot of the Monty Python I mean he had Eric Idle and of course Gilliam in Mm. there too Yes. <laughs> But not too much. A little bit, but not too much. So, yeah, he. I think he was <laughs> counting on the, the, the love of the Beatles. Right. Yeah. But that's okay. But I did think his past was really fascinating because, as you said, they didn't delve too much into how he began writing songs because he went from a kid who occasionally played the piano and sang for family at family get togethers to a kid who was kicked out of his house because his family couldn't afford to feed him anymore. Mm. And then he went out west, you know, and he worked. I mean, he. He worked like he was basically singing occasionally with this friend of his who they did a kind of an Everly Brothers act. And then discovered when they were changing the lyrics to suit them, or changing the melody to suit their vocal ranges, that, hey, wait, we're writing songs.
1: <laughs> yes, yes.
2: <laughs> which, you know, I thought was a really interesting thing. Like, oh, okay, we can just do this from scratch from now on. <laughs> we don't need these other songs, right. to, which I thought was kind of an interesting concept. But the fact that he, you know, worked in a theater and then he worked in a bank for seven years... Right. When he sold Cuddly Toy, they said, okay, you can quit the job at the bank. <laughs> That's <now." laughs>
1: right. Yes, yes,
5: yes. Hello. Hi,
2: is it Gary? <laughs> yes. Hi. Um, I was going to ask you
3: something.
5: Well, why didn't you?
3: When are you going to have a concert?
5: Oh, I don't do concerts. That's for other people
1: who don't want to do
3: that. You're not going
1: to have a concert ever? No. One thing that I think that the film did do very well was showing footage, and there was a ton of footage. I mean, we were speaking before about the fact that he didn't go out and do concerts, and they sort of say why. Partly lack of security and being told that he couldn't handle it, but also him thinking, I don't need that as a medium to get my music across. But he found that television performance was available to him. So there was the Harry Nilsen in concert special where we see those little bits of him behind the piano and he's talking to the audience about this is how you got to approach songwriting and he's playing songs behind the piano and there's a bit with Coconut I think it's from that same special there was a documentary which is on YouTube all the stuff's on YouTube there's a documentary on the making of the album Son of Schmilson nowadays it'd probably be called an electronic press kit and that thing was called Did Somebody Drop His Mouse I have to say it was not very well put together and I fell asleep through and it's only like 30-40 minutes (laughs) but they had had the best bits in the film I'd rather be dead I'd rather be dead
3: I'd
1: rather be
3: dead
1: And wet my bed They had a whole 45 minute special of him performing with the London Philharmonic doing a touch of Schmilson in the night. Full orchestra, Frank Sinatra's musical arranger conducting the orchestra. They talk about the point. Me
3: and my arrow. Greater than narrow Wherever we go Everyone knows
1: which was his creativity, writing this great children's fable while stoned on LSD, which I think is a nice (laughs) little contrast. And then there's footage from the exquisite horror movie that is Son of Dracula. (laughs) Uh, We'll come to that as well. So... Anyway, what I'm saying is, I think that yeah, sure, there was a lot of the standard talking heads, and we—that's yeah, okay. And I really, I mean, I think I enjoyed this film a lot more than I might have sort of indicated. Yeah, there were spots that were left out, but you know, we can't have a four or five-hour film. But I think that what they aimed to do, they did very well. And having plenty of footage available to them, plus it was also the whole thing of Harry narrating his own story on the soundtrack because late in life he decided he was going to write his memoirs, so he was into a tape recorder as a guide for whenever he was going to get around to writing his memoir, which unfortunately he passed before being able to do that. So we had a lot of that as well. So I think that even with the aim of giving his story to a new generation who didn't know who he was, who didn't have every album, I think that in that regard, despite you know some of my quips, that I think that was done very, very well. You know, And having all that footage available to them was a godsend. It was, it's really wonderful in that regard.
0: With a backup band that includes Klaus Vorman
4: and Jim Gordon and Snaky Jim Keltner, not to mention other great musicians like Gary Wright and Chris Spedding and the Jim Price Bobby Keys horn section, plus Caleb Quay and Ian Duck and a lot more English greats. And with Richard Perry producing the whole thing, well, it's
0: no wonder Harry Nilsson's done a rock album. You
3: can jump into the fire.
0: Nilsson, Schmilsen is the name of Harry Nilsson's new album. Harry's done a
4: rock
1: album on RCA Records and Tapes. I do find it interesting that there was enough footage to show the different Nilsons. There was the clean-cut Nilsson we were talking before, and I put up a post on the See Here group. This looks like it was a very common TV thing where you know the entertainer they'd have a set with a bunch of people at a dinner party and they're all hmm, no, we've eaten dinner let's just sit around and oh Harry you know a couple of songs sing us a song and we just <laughs> have, have a,
2: an, or-
5: an think, orchestra wa- wasn't that uh, was that Playboy after
1: dark? oh it looks like that sort of thing it could
2: be that could yeah, be
1: I think it was yeah I, so I, I wasn't paying attention as to who was in the crowd I just thought they were all anonymous extras sent by oh no those are
2: big time guys Well,
1: I, I wasn't paying attention and, and like I think it was uh, Terry Frost looked at the photo and said uh, dig Otto Preminger in the blue suit and I thought oh holy shit is that who that is
2: yeah and yeah. Norm Crosby I think yeah there's a couple of people in, the, in there yeah it's pretty funny though
1: hey Harry <laughs> sing us a
2: song
4: well listen as a guy who's always been kind of office oriented and uh, have my own desk here I think uh, one tune that you do that I get a special kick out of is, uh, is about the desk I wonder whether you might do that since we're here in the right. study.
3: I would yeah. do I will even study at it for you. <laughs> <laughs> it might be a bad idea.
5: It's entertainment. Though. I'd love like to see Justin Bieber doing something like that. You? <laughs> well, I wouldn't, but you know yeah, what I mean. I, I yeah. what well,
2: t- he can't do it because there's no auto-tune in the middle yeah. of someone's living
1: room. <laughs> exactly. So we get those early days of everything's produced within an inch of its life, and he's clean cut, and he's walking around in his smart suit. And then, you know, once the the money and the drugs kick in, he becomes this guy, this shambolic guy. I mean, it really does sort of parallel the Beatles' career. You know, they were the nice guys in the suits that Brian Epstein had gone and put them in, and by the time they get to the White Album and post-Rishi Cash and post-Brian Epstein dying, they're all shambolic. They're putting out the White Album, which we were speaking off-air before, Carrie, about you know, an album that you really love. And I sort of see Son of Schmilson, in a way, and following on Pussycats, the album that John Lennon produced, as being very much in that Beatles White Album shambolic sort of phase
5: of his life.
3: you breaking my heart
5: experimental
1: face well cocaine is a hell of a drug
2: <laughs> yeah oh yeah the studio was like a party and yeah, there was yeah. a bar and there was, there was like a big pile of drugs and you know, of, of various types and then people were just walking in and out and and coming over and it's funny to see because you know that the first time he was in a studio it was probably pristine you know it was probably yeah, yeah. he was in there with perry or the the guy before that that he fired fired Jarrett. Fire that, yeah. Okay, that guy. And then they sat, they had all the songs written ahead of time, and the arrangements were done, and, you know, and they had the side people come in, and they're telling them what the arrangements, and da-da-da-da-da, and they were really focused, and is it going to work, and a lot of talk about it. And then after that, it's just, <laughs> cut me another line, you know? It's, <laughs> I got I to gotta <laughs> sing this song in five minutes. Yeah, there's definitely a progression of really nice, innocent guy to, I'm uh, just a mess. You know? Yeah, yeah. Paul Williams called him a big bunny with sharp teeth.
5: Right, yeah, yeah. I, I wanna know what. Well, obviously the cocaine budget was huge, but I think the tank top budget must have been pretty big as oh, well. He,
1: oh he's rocking that tank top, isn't he? <laughs> it's so G G T M C
0: unbelievable. He's
2: carrying a big bottle of J and B
0: I have been aware for some time now that in a hundred years an occasion of great import will
5: affect the house of Dracula.
1: Kerry, do you remember, I know you said it's been a while since you watched Son of Dracula. I'll just sort of set the scene a little bit here. So early on in the film where the son of Dracula, Dracula killed earlier on in the film. And so his heir, his son, this is how good the film is. His name is Countdown. Yeah. (laughs) That's how good this film is. So Countdown makes it to what was then modern day England to take his rightful place as King of the Netherworld. So we get Baron Frankenstein and the Wolfman and all the other universal creatures who are waiting for him to take over the Netherworld. But he's got like three days before his crowning is due to take place. And he's being asked by Ringo Starr, who's playing as Merlin the Magician.
5: Countdown, it has been many moons since we've last seen each other. Are you well? Of course. Am I not always well? Great. Just great. The planets still watch over me. Now, tell me of yourself. Was your journey pleasant? It
3: had its
5: moments. And your musical studies, do they progress?
3: I suppose so. Over the years,
1: I've been into just about every conceivable type of music there is, you know. Mm, splendid. So that's the excuse for Harry to go and perform (laughs) some songs. And there's a couple of party sequences which you think were less about the film and just more about we're having a party and Harry's going to wear his vampire's cape and just (laughs) do his songs. But you got the impression that there was a lot of cocaine uh, oh, yeah. At RCA or Apple Records expense on the set of that yeah. film. But it was just an excuse to, and now Harry's going to perform another song. And
2: Well, the band he played with was pretty impressive, though, too. Peter Frampton and, and right. John Bonham and, uh, Keith, you know, people Keith like Moon, that.
1: Keith Moon. Keith Moon. And Klaus Vorman, who was like a friend of the Beatles, going back to the Beatles connection. He was a friend of the Beatles from the Hamburg days, and he was an artist who designed the cover of the Revolver album, but he was also a bass player in his own right and played on the first post-Beatles John Lennon Plastic Ono Band album. So he, he was quite a musician in his own right. So Harry Nelson had like the creme de la creme of the rock world and you would never have thought that John Bonham would be playing in a band with the man who had sung Without You or Good Old Desk but hey, there's cocaine yeah. going on so... I was going to say if there's
5: alcohol free, free booze and John Bonham there's was, uh, there's was there. There's a party, yeah. yeah.
2: Right, right, right. Well, I like a good-bad movie. I do. But this is not a good bad movie this is a bad bad movie okay and it has a lot of people in it and it was directed by Freddie Francis, who I love. I mean, Freddie Francis directed, gosh, The Innocents, a lot of stuff for Hammer and Amicus, yeah,
1: yeah, horror yeah, films yeah. and stuff
2: like that. The Elephant Man, he did the cinematography. I mean, the guy's really talented, <laughs> and he directed Son of Dracula. We sure yeah.
5: I just wrote him a, a big check, and he was probably there for the first couple of days, and then just thought, fuck it,
2: well, <laughs> just it keep confusing. filming. And... I always feel this way about professional sports teams, right? If you have a, a, a an American basketball team, the players are making 175 million dollars a season, or some crazy. You know, they're just making this just astronomical amount of money, and so is the coach. But the coach isn't as well known; he's not as big a deal, and he's also shorter. <laughs> so I mean, you have <laughs> like these like if the coach is going to tell him to go sit down, then right. you have this gigantic athlete's going to walk over, you know, and go, you know what? Yeah. No, f you, buddy. <laughs> so I I feel like Freddie. Francis was probably like herding cats when it came to like making this movie because it was like every rock star known to man and they're all bazillionaires and they don't give a crap about you know <laughs> standing in the right place or making their mark or you know doing all the things you, you would normally do if you were really an upcoming actor and you really cared right. so I feel like he was probably going oh for Christ's sake just do whatever you want to do you know
5: <laughs> well uh, imagine how bad I mean as bad as it is imagine how bad it would have been if they did didn't have a, a seasoned professional like Freddie Francis trying to round all these people up and just keep them in the same room, you know?
1: But he's not the only one, yeah. because I don't want to preempt too much of the interview that's coming up at the end of the show with Tony Sloman, but they also had Freddie Jones acting in the film, and they had yep. Dennis Price acting in the film, and these are people with Shakespearean training, for crying out loud.
2: Dennis Price was on his way down by then. Dennis Price, unfortunately, had an alcohol issue as well, and you see him in Kind Hearts and Coronets, and he's absolutely fantastic but then you see him in subsequent films like Victim right. Basil Dearden's Victim you can see it he's getting a little puffy and then after that every time you see him he's a little bit puffier and a little bit less distinct in how he speaks Right. I feel like Dennis Price got gigs because people knew that he once was Dennis Price
5: During the 70s as well a lot of British actors who, you know, who started in the theatre and made sort of legit films up until that point I guess they just was in the work because you'd see so many of these kind of classically trained older actors in just utter trashy crap that was made in the UK in the 70s, you know, right. just bad horror films right the way through to, you know, those sort of dodgy confessions of a window cleaner type movie where they're
1: <laughs> not to preempt too much what comes up in the conversation with Tony Sloman later on, once again, but as the editor on the film, he says that the film it just had no story, it had no. Real script to shoot with, but he said that in a strange way, Nilsson's acting he actually gives the part some dignity that it doesn't deserve. He said the photography is fine, the lighting, the shooting is fine, and the actors, the main actors there, plus Nilsson himself, tried to give some dignity to the role, despite the fact that the story has all these holes that you could drive a truck through. But yeah. Nilsson did the best with what he had and he it seems like he actually took it seriously so you know what you're saying Kerry about it this being a bad bad movie yeah it is and yet I didn't fall asleep and I've seen some films that really thought oh, right. is it? Is it well, yeah and this wasn't that
2: no I mean I watched it with a group and we, right. we we laughed quite a bit but it's not one of those films that you're just angry at I run a tweet along every Friday night and we call B-movie maniacs and we watch movies that are not exactly the ones that critics go go crazy for. So, we, you know, we'll watch The Creeping Terror and, and The Screaming Skull and The Brain That Wouldn't Die and films like that. And I have a great deal of love for these films. And we don't watch them because we're just laughing at them. I mean, we do laugh, but I feel like there's a respect for them because somebody made an effort, you know. And so if somebody made an effort or they're, they're not just sort of, as I've heard, this is a British expression, they're not just taking a piss, you know, they're sort of um,
1: <laughs> not taking the,
2: they're, piss? They're the piss.
1: Taking Not the a piss? piss? Okay, yeah,
2: sorry. taking the no piss. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the other thing means something completely different.
1: <laughs> means going to take, have a piss. Yeah, go, going to urinate. <laughs> taking the piss means ta- oh, what okay. you Americans call taking the Mickey.
2: Okay, well, yeah, yeah, just somebody just completely getting a paycheck, you know. I mean, mm. you, you see this move a lot in movies. You see movies in the 70s where once terrific actors, once very proud actors doing Shakespearean things, that didn't pay and that's the issue too yeah. is that they did these fantastic prestige plays and things that didn't pay so now they're doing tentacles you know in, sure. in yeah, uh, yeah. off yeah. the coast of Malta or someplace that's it so,
5: they, they get a holiday thrown in as well don't they you know, right. they get and to there for a couple of weeks Well, they gotta yeah. pay the
2: alimony somehow you know that's right <laughs> so. yeah the
5: mortgage is due yeah yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean I have a feeling that it, every time I see a, a really big time actor in one of these films I think well how many times did he get married? That must be the reason. Exactly. But this one isn't that. You're totally right. There is a sense oh. that they were having a good time when they were making it, maybe too good a time. And it's not a sort of like, let's just run up the expense account and ha 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 on the producers kind of thing. So I, I shouldn't put it down the way I did, I guess.
1: No, 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 that's that's fine. You feel what you feel. But I will say I'd read one review that had said that what magical mystery tool was to Ringo, this was to Harry Nilsson. You know, just
3: <laughs> not completely... <laughs> (laughs)
1: without merit, but very nearly completely without merit. And really, uh, the two scenes in the bar and the ballroom you know, with the band playing, which were really 110% superfluous. But that was still pretty enjoyable.
5: I think um, it's easy to forget as well, but Ringo is... is, I mean, he's not a great actor by any stretch of the imagination, but he's actually really good in That Will Be The Day.
1: We spoke about it on Love That Album with Dr. Zom, as it turns out. Oh! And the thing is, when you look back at some of those Ringo movies... He's actually charismatic, and that holds him up. But in this film, he's really <laughs> as flat as flat. Oh, he is. And, and that's true. Be, his, his performance in That'll Be The Day is positively Lord Olivier compared to what like. he does in this. This is really, really, really <laughs> bad. But No,
2: but you're right that Harry Nilsson does have a nice presence.
1: He does. I mean,
2: it helps. He's a tall, nice-looking man, and he's got the cape, and he's got the outfit, and he wields the cape around the way a vampire guy would, and he can do it. Mm. You know, he's pretty coordinated, so he looks good. But, yeah, Ringo's very drab, very mm -hmm. drab in this.
0: Ringo was
5: was the producer and star, co-star, of this
0: rock and roll Dracula movie. Probably one of the worst movies ever made. It's been... It was a great line some movies are released
5: others escape <laughs> this one this one escaped
1: so just to move quickly away from Son of Dracula we've been speaking for quite a while about you know, his music and about the film in general so probably now be a good time as any to just sort of you know, finally wrap up in final thoughts things you hadn't mentioned till now about the film which is who is Harry Nilsson and why is everybody talking about him that was what we started out this show with and we've had lots of other wonderful diversions so Kerry final thoughts would you recommend this this to people to watch?
2: I would. I would. Even though I guess it didn't break any new ground, it broke new ground for me. And I learned a lot about him, even though it was, as we've said, is sort of a survey course. It piqued my interest and it made me want to learn more about him. Right. So once I saw the film, I started looking through his back catalog of records and I started find out more about him personally, about his personal life and things like that. And where are his kids now? I was kind of curious about that, but I hadn't gotten that far. And then the whole, all all of his personal kind of stuff and the relationships that he had with other really famous musicians and artists and actors of the day. So yeah, I I thought it was really neat. There's a lot of stuff that I found out that I had no idea. Like just the weird thing about The Fisher King, that cracked me up because I love that movie and I had absolutely no idea that he had any relationship with Terry Gilliam or that he had sung that song. And so for that, it was kind of a neat thing. But mm. no, I, I'm really glad I saw it. So uh, thanks for suggesting it, uh, Tim, <laughs> even though you unfortunately <laughs> couldn't make it.
5: Yeah, I, I pretty much uh, agree with, with Kerry. It, it does exactly what you want a film like this to do. Harry Nelson was an interesting guy. it lived an interesting life, and it covers all that really well, I think. Like you say, it could... Well, If if you were uh, a complete Nielsen freak, obviously you're not going to find out anything you don't already know, but um, for us, people who may be aware of him, but not, you know, aware of him and his work, but, you know, not aficionados, there's plenty here to keep you entertained. Even though I might have sounded a bit negative about the the kind of format of the film earlier, like I say, it does exactly what you want it to do. And to be honest, I'm kind of a sucker for this type of film anyway. Mm. No no disrespect to Harry Nielsen, but, you know, I could have watched this if it was, I don't know, if it was about poison or if it was about deep purple or it was about scott walker or you know anyone i just i'm just a music nerd and i like films like this so that's why we're together yeah I, i totally recommend it absolutely yeah i'd recommend it yeah
1: one of my regular complaints on the show has often been that this is more about musical biopics and documentaries but the same thing could apply for the documentary is that it tends to be a checklist have we covered off this part of his life tick have we covered off that part of his life tick and it's all too easy to do that in a life which doesn't necessarily one incident flow to the next incident flow to the next incident it it has to be right here's this episode here's this episode and I like to think that this film what it did well was that everything seemed to naturally flow there were things as I said earlier that seemed to be missing questions that I had but of course the nature of this film as I think you said Kerry is that it makes me now want to go out and find out more and I'm going to go look for a written biography in fact I'm pretty sure I heard on a podcast a month ago or so that the is a really, really good biography out there. I'm going to search it out and I'll send you the name. But it did make me more curious and I and I think in that regard, it's done its job well. And it did flow and it didn't feel like a checklist. It, it just seemed to be, right, this part of his story moved into this part of this story, rather than being, right, have we told you about this? Okay, good. Mission accomplished. Everything seemed to flow naturally into the next thing. So I, I think it really did its job very well. And John Scheinfeld, I think the positives for me outweigh the negatives. And it, it is a definitely a very good film that needs to be seen out there by people who maybe are not aware of its existence but do like Nilsson or are just interested in the inner workings of 70s excess in the who are interested in great songwriters and the biggest takeaway for me from these last few weeks is just what an amazing arranger and songwriter and performer he was and he was far more than just a little touch of Schmilson in the night or even more than just you know, Nilsson Schmilson which is considered you know, a great album. And I should probably reiterate just one final point about a thing that I disagreed with. And there was just, a, I think, a couple of people's opinions in the film, but they said that the album Pussycats was a low point for him and really his post little touch of schmilsen in the night career was probably not that worthy of consideration and I vehemently disagree with that they probably were too close to him as a subject because he'd lost his voice and he was high on the coke but without necessarily knowing his backstory and just listening to the album in its own right I love how raggedy it is what we've said a couple of times throughout the show Kerry about the Beatles white album that's a raggedy album that's all over the place if you didn't know the Beatles backstory you'd think this is diverse this is great this is a long way from Please Please Me and I think Pussycats to me is a great album it's they're obviously sounding drunk or coked up but to me it's great raggedy shambolic music and I I love it it's an album that I found myself going back to you know even more than the three or four times I'd sort of said right I'm going to go through all these albums so um, that's an album I'm going to keep coming back to and I'm I'm just I'm now a huge Harry Nilsson fan as songwriter as musician and Uh, these albums are albums I'm going to treasure that's a good takeaway from the film so I think in that regard mission accomplished and I definitely recommend you to watch this film certainly if you don't know that much about him but even if you are a diehard fan just to see the footage just to see the found footage of his TV performances it's definitely worth your while so there you go who is Harry Nelson and that's why we're talking about him hope you think we did this justice Tim if you're listening so just all the usual sort of housekeeping things you want to get in contact with us you can write to us at seeherepodcast at gmail.com or join our Facebook group facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash seehere that's S-W-E-H-E-A-R tell you in a moment Moment, what we have planned for next month before we go into our interview with Tony Sloman. But once again, I want to thank you so much, Carrie, for joining us for you know, a second month in a row to be part of our crew. We've really loved your conversation and, and what you brought to the show. Thank you so much.
2: Oh, well, you're welcome. Thank so, you. It's been lovely being here.
1: So people want to follow you. Your writings are at prowlerneedsajump.wordpress.com.
2: That's correct. That's what's,
1: correct. What's your latest article? What Have you uh, got anything new that you've written since we last spoke That's uh, or that's due for publication?
2: The last thing I wrote was about Outland. It's been a while. I've been uh, really busy at work, so I haven't been... Mm. <laughs> my day job has kept me busy. Damn so um, the last thing is, yeah, the last thing was Outland, which I love that movie. And yes. I'm actually working on a piece called uh, When I'm Blue, I Watch Con Air.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. Uh, I'm with you with that one.
2: Fantastic. <laughs> so, um, and it's just talking about how action movies bring me great joy. And I'm also working on a piece about Freddie Francis, which is interesting because oh, wow. I'm for someone who's doing a Hammer Amicus blogathon. So I'm writing a, a long piece about Freddie Francis. So those are coming up.
1: So I imagine Son of Dracula will get Pride of Place in that article?
2: Yeah, I'm definitely <laughs> going to watch it again. And i it really, it's so funny because it's only um, the last couple of days that I went, I said, okay, I need to do a little more research in it before the show with uh, with uh, Maurice and Bernard. And I looked and I went, oh my God, that's Freddie Francis! I should be watching this right now, you know. <laughs> but I just didn't have time, darn it. Yeah. So, I, but I will again, and I'll be able to report back and uh, give you even more wonderful details about this stellar gem of a film.
1: Excellent. Um, actually, I've got to confess, one film that I couldn't bring myself to watch in time before we had this conversation was the film Skidoo, which Harry Nilsson had some songs in. And if you're a oh. Gottfried Amazing Colossal podcast fan, then that film looms large in their canon. So, And I know that they're frequently saying that that film is a big mess. So, uh, Oh, yeah. F- film That's a- what
2: I've read that. I've never seen it, but I've read about that. That and Top Banana. Have you ever seen Top Banana? Oh, it's another one. Just like that. it. Oh, wow. Just full of everyone and just a mess. Well, you
1: know. <laughs> yeah, but does it have Groucho Marx as God?
2: <laughs> no, it does not.
1: <laughs> ah, well, you see, So, I'm going to make it my priority in the next week to uh, watch Skidoo. It doesn't do anything as far as a podcast goes, but I do absolutely want to see this, and then maybe send the note to Frank Padre and say, "Well, you suffered for your art, so it's about time I did too." <laughs> so, next month for June 2018, it'll be episode 53, and it's my pick for the month. And I was most excited. to to discover that a director that I know you're a big fan of, Bernie, and Tim certainly is, and I'd be interested to know if you are as well, Kerry, is uh, Takeshi Mikai, and he's made a film which i have never heard of, but possibly, and I haven't watched it yet, but possibly fits the see-here mould, and I deliberately didn't watch it because I didn't want to be disappointed beforehand to find out that it doesn't really quite fit the mould, but the film is called Blues Harp, and it's about a guy who's a blues musician and a drug runner, so I'm hoping that it's more than just like, five seconds of him playing a harmonica and that there's a lot of blues music scenes and it takes a big part in the story otherwise we're going to be talking about a film that's got nothing to do with music which will be a bit of a shame so anyway uh, we're going to be watching and talking about 1998's Takeshi Miike film, Blues Harp and I've gone and invited a man we should have had a long time ago on the program and that's our good friend and compadre from the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, Mr. Will Smith he's going to be joining us to talk about this Takeshi Miike joint, so looking extremely forward to that and okay, I think that's just about it so what we'll do now is go over to the interview that I did a few days ago with the editor of Son of Dracula Anthony Sloman and hear what he has to say and my huge thanks to Jonathan Sloman his son who put me in touch with uh, his father Tony uh, and met Jonathan through our mutual love of Gilbert Gottfried he's on the Gilbert Gottfried Amazing Colossal Listener Society so uh, my huge thanks to Jonathan and thousand orange wedges to you so um, <laughs> we'll now go to our interview with tony and bernie myself and tim and we'll we'll speak to you next month all the best cheers
4: come and share a joke or two or come and have a smoke or two you can have some coca-cola too with
3: harry
1: Welcome back to episode 52 of See Here Podcast. On the other end of a phone call, I have. Tony Sloman, assistant editor for the film Son of Dracula, starring Harry Nilsson and Ringo Starr. Thank you so much for taking my call, Tony. Marvellous to speak to you.
4: Oh, it's my pleasure. And if, if that's my only credit, then I'm in real trouble, aren't
1: I? <laughs> no, well, I've been uh, doing a little bit of research, and you actually have quite a lot of uh, credits there. So I hope so. Before we start talking about Son of Dracula, I wanted to ask a few general questions about your career leading up to this. Of course. That.
4: But before you even start that, you do know that not only did I do Son of Dracula... But I also was the dubbing editor on Count Dracula with Louis Jordan.
1: I have gone and seen which that, I yes. think,
4: which I think is one of the best Dracula's ever. But anyway, <laughs> on with my career.
1: Sure. So, well, before we even get to your career, what are your earliest recollections of watching film and falling in love with it?
4: I, you won't believe this, but I've never really asked this before, at least not 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 for public use. I was a post-war baby, and I grew up in the in the east end of London. And, First City. or well, grew up in First date. In the days when there were three cinema circuits, ABC, Odeon, and Gaumont, throughout the UK, and we we never really went, as we called it, up west, going up, up the West End to see a film. But for special treats, my parents took me to what were called newsreel Mm-hmm. Um, I know you. I know you had them there too, where they showed newsreels, but more importantly, cartoons, mainly Disney cartoons. Mm-hmm. And I just fell fell in love with these these programs. I was what five, and gradually that became a Sunday treat to go up to the Cameo Great Windmill Street, see the Disney cartoons, and have have tea at Lion's Corner House. But of course, um, I wanted more. I, I wanted to see full pictures, not just five-minute, ten-minute cartoons. And so I was taken in Forest Gate to see films that were considered. Well, suitable for a five-year-old. So I saw, and I was too young to really appreciate them, I saw those great, mighty Technicolor epics that impressed me no end. I have no words for this. Samson and Delilah with uh, Victor Mature uh, 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 at Hedy Lamarr, the greatest show on earth, Cornel Wilde and Betty Hutton. Both uh, DeMille pictures, this would be DeMille pictures. I also saw, as indeed a Jewish kid from the East End should have been taken to see, David and Bathsheba with Gregory Peck and Susan Hayward. So I, was, I, was I was under my seat. I was so scared with the thunder and lightning. So that's how it started. Um, I was taken to the pictures by, uh, by my parents, by my grandfather, who was Russian and, and loved the movies. He grew up watching Richard Dix Westerns, and, and his English wasn't too great, so he just loved seeing cowboy pictures and musicals. And I was, ta- I was taken, and I just fell in love with the movies. When my mother had a serious operation, post-war operation, she had all her teeth out, I was taken to see Easter Parade. And that just did it. That just turned me on to forever. So it's as young as that, you know. And I, I, I didn't know there was a career there. I didn't know people actually made films. But I, I was always involved and interested in films, and, and when we got the television, as most people did, for the, you know, just before the coronation, I wasn't really interested because it was like a small screen, small screen in black and white. So I always wanted to. Go, the English expression was going to the pictures. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to go to. Always wanted to go to the pictures, and then we moved to South London, where I had a choice, if you can imagine this, of 15 cinemas spread out along, uh, Kennington, Brixton, Streatham, all of, all of South London. And I went to school at that in Dulwich College, where, by the way, nobody told me that, that one of my, my favorite and one of the greatest film directors went. That was Michael Powell. They told me about pe- people like P.G. Wodehouse and cricketers like Dennis Compton. You know, I wasn't interested in sport. Uh-huh. But nobody told me that Mickey Powell went to Dulwich. Anyway, and, <laughs> until, until much later on. And then I realized that, yeah, people make films. You know, it's a business. How do you do it? Now, you have to remember in the, the late 50s, early 60s, I left school in '63. There were no film schools, no film students, nowhere to study. There was the London Film School in Brixton, but you had to pay, and we weren't, we weren't wealthy. Okay. So I did what everybody else did. I wrote about a hundred letters to everybody I'd ever heard of in the, in the film industry. I got three replies back. One from producer Howard Heck, who was making The Way West at the time. He said, I'm sorry, there just isn't anything I can do for you. Which, of course, a classic letter that I still have. And eventually, I left school. I didn't want to go to university. And now of course everybody wants to go to wants to work in movies goes to university, gets a degree in, in film. Yep. But it didn't ha- it wasn't happening then. But I was recommended to go to uh, courses that were arranged by the LCC, London County Council, in cinematography. And so I did. I, I, went, I had a day job working at a dry cleaners, and I went to evening classes in cinematography. Even though I had a public school background, I could have gone to Oxford and Cambridge. I hope I'm not boring you with it.
1: Not at all, not at all. So, so, I, love
4: so I, really, I really didn't know, because nobody in my family, my father was a tailor, he had some showbiz clients, but nobody knew how to get into films, how to get into films. And the school's careers careers master was useless. He just said, "Well, we might might be able to get you something in the BBC, but that's television." They didn't understand. <laughs> They really didn't understand. All that came much later with film education, and now, of course, uh, I'm, I'm not saying it's easy. It's always easy if you're rich, of course, you make your own films. But if you're not, you, there are there are film schools and colleges and, that that you can go to, and distinguish graduates, particularly in America. But there wasn't in, in post-war Britain, not at all. So eventually, a friend of uh, a friend of a friend of my father's knew somebody who had a cutting room in Soho and was basically exploiting boys of my age. I was 18. <laughs> Um, paying seven pounds a week, and they, they they did the running in the cutting rooms. Well, I couldn't have had better better training in film, because they let out those cutting rooms to feature films. Jack Harris, David Lean's editor, was in with a film called He Who Rides a Tiger. I didn't know who Jack Harris was in those days. But what in fact happened was that um, they needed another second assistant editor, and I I learned how to how to sync up rushes, which of course is the most important thing anybody who wants to work in the cutting rooms could do. And I, I wanted to work in the cutting rooms because I knew that one thing was peculiar and specific to film and it existed in no other medium, and that was editing. And I noticed that many editors became directors. I wasn't sure that's what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to work in the cutting rooms because that was peculiar, specific, and unique to filmmaking. And that's how I started at Caledonian Film Soho.
1: Was the British film industry in a healthy state when you were joining? You said you sent off 100 applications to uh, various people.
4: All over, yeah, yeah, they just didn't reply. The British film industry has always been in a parlous state. Um, Post-war, which is when we're really talking, the early 50s, people who had come back from the forces um, got a job at the nearest... Factory down the road, and very often that nearest factory down the road happened to be somewhere like Pinewood Studios or Associated British Studios. Mm. So I found I found later on while working as an assistant that most people in those days who were working in film didn't really care about film. They were they were terrific technicians, no question about that. But it wasn't their obsession; it was my obsession. It wasn't necessarily theirs. They were having normal suburban lives, with families earning overtime, getting mm. their kids married, and all that. I wasn't interested in that. My heroes were John Ford, Howard Hawks, Vincent Minnelli. You know, the, the great American directors whose films I just loved. And that's what it was. It was a it was a love affair with film. I was disconcerted to discover that most people working in film in Britain didn't actually know who those people were or care about it. Wow. If they went to the pictures, it was it was something you did on a weekend. And even when they had television, Britain, of course, was one of the countries where the cinemas were were virtually deserted. When when um, a second channel started on television television has always been the populist i won't call it an art entertainment in in the uk so i was aware of what was happening and of course through my early 20s a lot of there was a lot of underground movement um we only had the british film institute and sight and sound magazine but gradually i was discovering people were setting up a new magazine called movies who were idolizing the american directors that i admired there was a list from... A big influence on me was the uh, American film by Andrew Saris, who, who categorized most, what were most of my favorite directors. There was the movement in New France. Things were happening worldwide, and I was very lucky to be uh, a part of that. And while I was at Caledonian, I worked with, I would say, the great Greg Harris, who was cutting the film for Charles Crichton, great evening director. Yes. I managed to, get this, managed to get the signatures that I needed on my union form, because remember, you couldn't work in this country in film unless you were in the union and they, want, they didn't want any new members. I got rejected four or five times, and I finally got accepted at the very last minute. But My, my real break came when, um, I, from oddly enough, from the cinematography classes that I was attending at the and tuding Institute. There was a guy there called Martin Green who was working on a feature, Operation Crossbow, I think it was, or The Truth About Spring, I'm not sure, at MGM Studios' Boreham Wood, and he'd heard that they were firing their second assistant editor on a film called Passport to Oblivion. Would I be interested in taking over? Well, of course, I realised this was going to lose me my seven pound a week job at Calcutta and uh, permanent job, but this was the break. This was the break into features. So I went on. off. They got me the job. Uh, they offered me the job starting two weeks time, and in those two weeks, I managed to get some really good signatures. Charles Crichton, his editor Jack Harris, uh, uh, on the ACT that the union formed, got in the union more or less overnight after being rejected four or five times. And started on um, Passport to Oblivion at MGM Studios, Boreham Wood. Yeah, the studios where they made Ivanhoe and Knights of the Round Table and all those films I grew up with. And it was very exciting. The, f- the title of the film was changed to Where the Spies Are. I was working with David Niven.
3: Mm, gosh.
4: So that, that's how it started in um, 1964. So I was, I was very, very lucky, uh, I have to say. Uh, someone was watching over me.
1: That was your first... Big break, but you seem to be, at least according to what I've seen on your IMDb page and your own page, that sort of worked in quite a range of films. You seem to be consistently working either in uh, sound editing or uh, or visual editing and films like, you know, One Million Years BC and Othello and all sorts of things. And how did you continuously get the gig? Was it just you did one and...
4: By Contacts. By contacts, I met uh, other people in the studios, uh, and and I was learning very quickly on the job. Uh, once the the structure of the cutting rooms is very straightforward. It's the film is is in the hands of an editor. The cutting rooms are run by a first assistant editor. The rushes are done by a second assistant editor. The soundtrack is prepared by the dubbing editor who has a dubbing assistant and then it's mixed in in a mixing studio. That's the basic structure. If it's a big film, there are obviously more sound editors, more assistants. If it's location, often more. But that's the structure. So once I'd started as an assistant editor with Where the Spies Are Under My Belt... I, I thought, I'm never going to get another job, to be honest with you. And then I got a phone call saying, would I like to come and work on Othello and, at Shepperton?" I was recommended, and I did. And that got me onto the studio floor, because Othello, the, this is the film version of the Laurence Olivier production at, at Chichester, Yes, was was shot in long takes, so you had to have an assistant on the floor with the movieola, so that the director, Stuart Burge, could see where he was finishing the, the, the last 10 minutes and, and starting the next 10 minutes, because film reels only lasted 10 minutes in those days. And I was on the floor most of the time watching, watching Olivier and Maggie Smith and, and learning so much, I can't tell you, I never thought that would happen to me. And that indirectly led to um, One Million Years B.C. because I, that also, they, they shot in Lanzarote in the Canary Islands and everything was matched um, when they moved into the studio at Ulster And they needed somebody who had experience with a movie owner on the floor for matching, mm. which is, of course, what I, what I did on Othello. And that led to me working with Ray House. and One Million Years B.C. was shot mute, so all the sound was recreated. So that's how I became a sound editor, assistant, sound editor. So working with great people, and I and I met a lot of con- made a lot of contacts and learned a lot just by by listening. I also, of course, made a few mistakes. And um, that that led to me working as a second assistant because the the editor of One Million Years B.C. got a couple of horror films, The Frozen Dead and It, over at Merton Park Studios. So I was in the news studio. And then I moved on to the sound side from the picture side on, on those two. And then Don Chaffee, the director of One Million Years B.C., had remembered that I was on the floor and could handle film and had a memory for film. And he was starting a television series with Patrick McGowan called The Prisoner, and the rest is history.
1: Oh, my God. I went on to
4: Lord. The Pri- Prisoner as film librarian and never stopped working and did l- in that period. I'll never forget what's his name, Tell Me Lies, Oedipus the King. And then the sound editor on Oedipus the King, which was the Philip Savile picture with, with Christopher Plummer as Oedipus and Orson awesome Welles as Tiresias. And he got an, uh, an editing job to cut Wonderwall, which was an independent film financed by charles claw the millionaire financed by charles claw's son alan claw and he asked me if i'd like to be his first assistant editor so i've been promoted from assistant sound and second assistant to first assistant editor which is running the cutting rooms on wonderwall and that's my first on-screen credit and of course I couldn't be more excited or delighted, although I hope I was super cool and professional about it, working with the composer of that film, who was George
3: Harrison.
1: Well, I was going to come to that as my next question, the obvious and dumb question, but it, what was it like working on a film? Did you actually get to spend any time with George Harrison in a professional of
4: context? Of course, yes. I, I did. The, I did the music sheets that he was writing music for. I found, and our first running was for, for the cut. It wasn't a complete. It wasn't completed, but it was a rough cut which we ran in a, a private cinema in in Bayswater. And the four Beatles came along. George had to see it um, to to see if he liked, if he wanted to do it. <laughs> it was an afternoon, and he said, "Are you ready for this?" Yep. He says, "Is it all right if I bring the guys with me?" <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so my, my editor, Rust, Rusty Copperman, was super cool. Uh, and said, "Of course, George, and I'll, I'll have my assistant, there, my assistant there as well." And that, that was myself and my second assistant, Bridget Rice, who was uh, uh, unbelievably over the moon over this because they were here heroes as well as half the world. And we had this running in the Bowwater House Theatre opposite the Army Barracks in Hyde Park in Knightsbridge. And we ran for the for the Four Beatles. Um, it didn't have any music, so of course it, it felt slow. So that was exactly the purpose of, of running it for, for, for George. And uh, as they left, uh, we were introduced to them also. I shook hands with all Four Beatles, which was very exciting. I, I, I did eventually wash them. And, um, <laughs> as, no, listen, I'm not that blasé. You know, it, it, it was exciting. I'm not going to pretend. All these people I worked with, they all pretended it was nothing, Meeting.
1: They're oh, liars. Goodness, They're liars. But, but uh, of
4: course they are. Or, or, <laughs> or just bloody bleeding ignorant. You know. Anyway, point is, um, it was a daytime screening. As the Beatles, the four of them shook hands with us and said goodbye, I have to tell you what, what R- Ringo said. I, I held the door open for him. He turned to me and said, oh, Tony, he said, oh, I always think it's going to be dark when I come
1: out of the pictures. Another classic Ringo witticism.
4: So that's how I met Ringo Starr, who was to influence my career in a couple of other ways, which I think we'll get on to. But um, Wonderwall was uh, was a long shoot, a long cut. Um, it's now finally, virtually 50 years later, achieving some kind of fame. It's available, and there are courses in Wonderwall at the, the Leicester and Sheffield Universities. I know somebody who took it, which because people get in touch with me i think i hate to say it but i'm one of the two people left alive on the crew of wonderwall oh wow and uh, it was just a fantastic experience um george and uh, and the gang went off to rishikesh and that's where he recorded some of the indian music i do have a postcard from george harrison in rishikesh which i wouldn't part with and yes, of course, I worked very closely with George. I did the music cues. Rusty Koppelman, the editor, actually fitted the music. And of course, they overshot. So it, it was very. Rusty's work was very, very skilled. He was taking out bars and choruses, and it was it was brilliant. And of course, the the, the, the people on the on the shoot. If you've ever looked up the, the musicians who were playing on Wonderwall, then you've got a real surprise coming because it's you know it's Ravi Shankar and Eric Clapton, and it, mm. it's a, Terrific soundtrack, and obviously never has been released several times with with all the outtakes now. So working, yes, I worked very closely with George.
1: Several years later, you worked as mm-hmm. an assistant editor for the film. That's the focus of this episode of the show, *Son of Dracula*, which Harry yeah. and Ringo both appear and have a big hand behind the scenes in the production. So I got to ask. Did you spend any time on the set? And if so, well,
4: no, because it was it was shot it was shot entirely on locations. I was on the okay. on the post when it came back. But I will tell you how I got it, which is kind of interesting, because I'd worked with Ringo before, mm. which I didn't probably didn't actually mention. Ringo Starr put his own money, or Beatles money, or Apple money, into a, a short film shot by a man called Hatami, Sharuk Hatami, who was a stills photographer, and he'd worked he knew Roman Polanski, and he would worked on a documentary on the making Rosemar's Baby, which ironically has now gone out with a DVD. so You can see it. But I didn't know who it was, and I was working on a film called Oedipus the King, as I mentioned earlier, with Paul Davis, uh, 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 the editor, and he said, would I go to an interview with him, with Paul, and meet Shariq Katami?" which I did. But I went as Paul's assistant, and Paul was going to cut it. Well, the most awful thing happened, and I behaved appallingly. I got offered the editor's job, and... Paul was nowhere to be seen and I took it and I didn't phone him to say guess what's happened Paul I'm really sorry about this etc etc I just took the job and started the producer was Ringo Starr and that's when I first met Ringo and we got on famously I won't go into the details about what happened the day Paul found out and threw my cutting room door open and called me all sorts of names and he was right he was right to do that because I'd taken his job and anyway um i I'd, I'd finished but they never actually finished hold it because it wasn't really showable i i went on to be an assistant editor on a horror film called vault of horror when i got a phone call from somebody uh, a couple of people i knew saying would i come on to the new freddie francis horror film which turned out to be son of dracula and to my amazement this was produced by yes the very same ringo star who i had been working for earlier on hold it so ringo knew me and we were buddies. He asked my advice on things. Although I was working as an assistant dubbing editor and assistant film editor on Sign of Dracula, uh, Ringo and I obviously got on famously. And I was in the dubbing theater all the time through the main the main mix, which, frankly, was thrilling. Well, of course, you try not to be thrilled when we've got to reshoot Keith Moon's drum solo in one of the numbers in Sign of Dracula. <laughs> That's right. So we do that sync to the film on the screen but just record the drums. And when you see that number, where he's playing in a cavern with backing Nilsson and playing with Klaus Warman and a few other people, that's Keith Moon's drums. But they didn't record well at the night because of all the crowd noise and ambience and God knows what else. So he came into the studio and just shot the drums in sync. Marvelously. We had one rehearsal, one take on Keith Moon. He was nice as pie. The only problem, of course, was he never saw daylight. So we got into a heavy overtime situation, which was fine with me, of course. And we, we shot Keith, Keith Solo at night. And I'll tell you a, a very brief funny story about that, all those um, night dubbing sessions with Ringo and Harry. Harry came to the dub, but he was drinking quite heavily out of the bottle at the time. I was dating a lady I met at the BBC and the way you do, and you fix up re- restaurant dates and movie dates, but of course we're dubbing at night. So I have to phone Simone, the lady I, I was dating and later married, to say, I can't make it tonight. And as I was phoning from the dubbing theatre, which never could be Ringo and the dubbing between them played a joke on me. While I was saying to Simone on the telephone, um, I can't make it tonight because we're working late. The the scene in the film was a party scene, and they played up the party sound effects to make it sound as though I was actually at a party when I was saying I couldn't make it tonight because I was working late.
1: Right, right.
4: Ringo thought that was hysterical. Absolutely really funny to to make my girl think I was, was, you know, partying when I was working. So that's Ringo's humor. He's a really genuinely funny guy. Um, The film's terrible, of course. Um, Not of course it was shot by Freddie Francis, but... One of the things I did on, on Son of Dracula, Freddie had gone off to do another picture. They were looking for somebody to take over from from the editor, who ironically was the very same Paul Davis who I'd replaced on, on Ringo's previous picture.
1: Oh, that would have been Paul uncomfortable. Was
4: given a, it, it was uncomfortable. Paul was given a music editor because he wouldn't go. His contract said, you know, he, he's on his editor. If you look at the credits of the film, there's no editor credit. Paul is the music editor. And I got on somebody I met when I was at Caledonian and editor called Derek York, who was cutting um, sounds on a wet afternoon at the time I met him. And I got on well with Derek and he had screenings of 16mm films in his flat and we, a group of us, the term film buff wasn't invented then, film fans went over on Sunday night. So I knew Derek was available. I didn't know he didn't know anything about rock and roll or pop music at the time, that was a bit serious too. But anyway, the picture needed savings, so I recommended Derek York. Ringo got on well with him and, and hired Derek. So when you, when you look at the credits of Sound of Dracula, you'll find music editor Paul Davis consultant edited Derek York, and no editor credited. Uh, Derek went went out and shot all those street scenes with Nilsson wandering around the West End and put some structure into the film. I can't tell you what it was like without all his stuff. I mean, you can just imagine if you knew it. I mean, it's bad enough now, but without <laughs> no continuity or anything.
1: I, I like the nice little meta moment where Count Down, what a terrible name, uh, Count Down walks mm-hmm. down the street through Soho, passes by a record shop, and sees a copy and see of and sees
4: Son of Schmilsson in, yes, yes. yes. in the window.
1: Yes, it is Son of Schmilsson, isn't it? In the window.
4: Yes, well, Derek shot that. Now, what RCA did was to send Derek York. A pile of uh, of Nelson, Harry Nelson albums because Derek didn't know who he was. hadn't heard of him, oh, no. and I realised that the man I'd recommended was as square as they come. <laughs> an expression, <laughs> an expression we don't use anymore. And what had I done? You know, I mean. <laughs> I just got them into a state. So I kind of gently advised I didn't have a credit on the film, of course. I was dubbing assistant. Dubbing assistants didn't get credits. These days, everybody gets a credit, and the credits run for 10 minutes after at the end, but they, they didn't then. So I was really quite influential on Son of Dracula. Whether I was influential of in making it worse than it could possibly be or better, I, I have no idea. I, we had a good time on it. Nielsen was great fun, of course, to work with. I know that's the focus. They got used to working nights because they were none of them. None of them made daylight. That's why it was so
1: appropriate to do a Dracula picture. Was working they, with Nelson at like at the party scene or in the pub scene. Uh, yeah. like a precursor to the Hollywood vampires.
4: Well, I don't know
1: about precursor.
4: I mean, Harry could never have worked the way he worked in Hollywood. That's for sure because they're much more unionised than we were. And although we were unionised, they would never stand for dubbing at night and doing whatever. He... <laughs> They do during the day, which was generally sleeping. Yes, I suppose you could say it was a precursor, but he would be the last person to say that, I'm guessing now
1: when he was on the set was he willing to take direction or or, or was he sort of saying like i'd like well, to suggest we do things this way or or all
4: this- right i'm going to ask you am going to ask you a personal question sure. have you seen the film yes i have have you seen it in the a thea- have you seen it in a the theater
1: no i have not no i have not i've you just you need se-
4: to see it in a th- in a theater with an audience it wasn't widely shown and it does have screenings and, on the west coast and strange hollywood theaters but Harry dominates the screen.
3: Yes, he's
4: it's a, it's an undirected performance. He knows his t- his tone is absolutely spot on as Dracula's son. He knows how to do it. He's he's cut the dialogue down to a minimum. He's, he did all this himself. Unfortunately, it makes Ringo look even worse as Merlin because Ringo is no actor and it shows. But but Harry has great dignity. He looks right. He wears the cloak. Beautifully, he, he understands. It was called Countdown when we worked on it, by the way. I was, as a film aficionado, annoyed they changed the title to Son of Dracula because that's the classic Robert C. O. mac universal horror film. Yes. But uh, I guess Countdown is, is as arch as it sounds, even as we talked about it today. <laughs> so it didn't matter because we knew Apple had no releasing arrangements for it. It never played the UK. It was Jerry somebody, I can't remember who, who picked it up for America. And, of course, the soundtrack album um, achieved release by um, a strange merger for one album only between RCA, Harry Nelson's label, and Apple. And if you look at this soundtrack album, it's on the Rappel label. Oh, wow. So I don't know, I don't know who distributed that with, it, with a sleeve where the wings open. It would be a collector's item if the music was any good. Sure. But in fact, it was repetitive. It used Harry's biggest hits, of course. And there's nothing wrong with that, really. Harry was terrific. I think he's terrific in the film. The film simply isn't worthy of him. You could argue the budget. You could argue Freddie. Freddie had long gone before all that chaos in the cutting rooms happened. You could argue the script. I've forgotten who it was. It was a friend of Ringo's, I think. But it's just, it just doesn't work. It more or less any level. Yeah, you could look at it as a camp classic, but if you study it closely, they're not, they're, apart from Freddie Jones, they're not camping
1: it up. I was going to say, I mean, you had people like Freddie Jones and Dennis Price you know, with their background, mm. the work they'd done and the work they were going to do. I mean, we've got mm. people who'd done mm. the, the Elephant Man later on and Kidnapped and Kind Hearts and Coronets mm. for crying out loud and yes. Call, call yes. Me Genius, which is one of my favourite British films of all time. And how did they end up on Son of Dracula? The
4: Call Me Genius, I think, is called The Rebel in the rest of the well, you mean the Tony Hancock
1: pitch? Yes, yes, absolutely. Yes,
4: yes, that's cool. That's a, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's the rebel. Um, anyway, you want one one word answer from me, and you'll think I'm a smart aleck?
1: No, go for it. Money, okay,
0: money.
4: <laughs> Apple paid very well, we all got paid by Apple, the Beatles company.
1: I you had for a well. party on Den- set.
4: Dennis, well, no, there was no real set. They were all locations. Oh, okay. It's not, it's not a studio picture. But Dennis Price used to turn up on location every day with his crate of uh, six-pack of beer. It was gone by about 11 o'clock, and he just used to send out for it. I'm sure they, ne- I'm sure they never billed him for, for his, his tremendous drinking, which, of course, eventually did him in. No, it was well cast. It was sensibly cast. There's a distinguished casting lady whose name, I can't remember who cast it, but it's on the credits. Uh, it's a handsome looking film it's it's well shot it just doesn't work and i I wouldn't blame Freddie for it he was up against a a, a non-script Freddie is a great cameraman he went back to being a great cameraman he was a great cameraman before he was director but as a director he was very very competent um he would film the script and when you've got people who don't turn up aren't there change the lines. I'm not saying he was out of his depth. He was a lovely man. Freddie Francis was a great cameraman, one of the greatest cameramen of all time. And, and people like David Lynch recognize this. He was a perfectly competent director. I know people love his Hammer films and that's obviously why he, Ringo, as producer, hired him for Son of Dracula. But he really couldn't handle the hours, the rock and roll, the drinking. And he, I think he was really glad to be off it. Um, and I, uh, I, I could be wrong. But he, he went back to doing um, great, great camera work. He, he he continued to direct occasionally. And he was a lovely, lovely man, a nice man. I worked with him a couple of times. I got to know his wife, Pamela, who was a continuity girl. And Freddie, he was just a great guy. Um, I ho- I hope they paid him decently. I'm sure they did.
1: Well, I've probably got a bunch of other questions, but because of your phone limit time, I'll I'll cut it off here. So, Tony, thank you so much for your time. It's been absolutely fascinating to find out about your experiences about the train wreck that was Son of Dracula, but still, fun in its way.
4: Well, thank you. I mean, it's not a film I often get asked to chat about. I'm sure you can understand.
1: Yes. Anyway, thank you so much. You're listening to See Here, Episode 52.